Chapter Four of The Two Gun Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. A different girl. Ferguson had no means of knowing how long he was unconscious, but when he awoke, the sun had gone down and the darkening shadows had stolen into the clearing near the cabin. He still sat in the chair on the porch. He tried to lift his injured foot, and found to his surprise that some weight seemed to be on it. He struggled to an erect position, looking down. His foot had been bandaged, and the weight that he had thought was upon it was not a weight at all, but the hands of a young woman. She sat on the porch floor, the injured foot in her lap, and she had just finished bandaging it. Beside her on the porch floor was a small black medicine case, a sponge, some yards of white cloth, and a tin wash basin partly filled with water. He had a hazy recollection of the young woman. He knew it must have been she that he had seen when he had ridden up to the porch. He also had a slight remembrance of having spoken to her, but what the words were he could not recall. He stretched himself painfully. The foot pained frightfully, and his face felt hot and feverish. He was woefully weak, and his nerves were tingling, but he was alive. The girl looked up at his movement. Her lips opened, and she held up a warning hand. "'You are to be very quiet,' she admonished. He smiled weakly and obeyed her, leaning back, his gaze on the slate blue of the sky. She still worked at the foot, fastening the bandage. He could feel her fingers as they passed lightly over it. He did not move, feeling a deep contentment. Presently she arose, placed the foot gently down, and entered the house. With closed eyes he lay in the chair, listening to her step as she walked about in the house. He lay there a long time, and when he opened his eyes again he knew that he must have been asleep, for the night had come and a big yellow moon was rising over a rim of distant hills. Turning his head slightly, he saw the interior of one of the rooms of the cabin, the kitchen, for he saw a stove and some kettles and pans hanging on the wall, and near the window a table, over which was spread a cloth. A small kerosene lamp stood in the center of the table, its rays glimmering weakly through the window. He raised one hand and passed it over his forehead. There was still some fever, but he felt decidedly better than when he had awakened the first time. Presently he heard a light step and became aware of someone standing near him. He knew it was the girl, even before she spoke, for he had caught the rustle of her dress. "'Are you awake?' she questioned. "'Why, yes, ma'am,' he returned. He turned to look at her, but in the darkness he could not see her face." "'Do you feel like eating anything?' she asked. He grinned ruefully in the darkness. "'I couldn't say that I'm exactly yearning for grub,' he returned. "'Though I ain't done any eating since morning. "'I reckon a rattler's bite ain't considered to help a man's appetite any.' He heard her laugh softly. "'No,' she returned. "'I wouldn't recommend it. He tried again to see her, but could not, and so he relaxed and turned his gaze on the sky. But presently he felt her hand on his shoulder, and then her voice, as she spoke firmly. "'You can't lie here all night,' she said. "'You would be worse in the morning.' 
and it is impossible for you to travel tonight. I'm going to help you to get into the house. You can lean your weight on my shoulder. He struggled to an erect position, and made out her slender figure in the dim light from the window. He would have been afraid of crushing her, could he have been induced to accept her advice. He got to his uninjured foot, and began to hop toward the door. But she was beside him instantly, protesting. Stop! she commanded firmly. If you do that, it will be the worse for you. Put your hand on my shoulder. In the darkness he could see her eyes flash with determination, and so, without further objection, he placed a hand lightly on her shoulder, and in this manner they made their way through the door and into the cabin. Once inside the door, he halted, blinking at the light, and undecided, but she promptly led him towards another door into a room containing a bed. She led him to the bedside and stood near him after he had sunk down upon it. You are to sleep here tonight, she said. Tomorrow, if you are considerably better, I may allow you to travel. She went out, returning immediately with a small bottle containing medicine. If you feel worse during the night, she directed, you must take a spoonful from that bottle. If you think you need anything else, don't hesitate to call. I shall be in the next room. He started to voice his thanks, but she cut him short with a laugh. Good night, she said. Then she went out and closed the door after her. He awoke several times during the night, and each time took a taste of the medicine in the bottle. But shortly after midnight he fell into a heavy sleep, from which he did not awaken until the dawn had come. He lay quiet for a long time, until he heard steps in the kitchen, and then he rose and went to the door, throwing it open and standing on the threshold. She was standing near the table, a coffee-pot in her hand. Her eyes widened as she saw him. Oh! she exclaimed. You're very much better. He smiled. I'm thanking you for it, ma'am, he returned. I certainly wouldn't have been feeling anything if I hadn't met you when I did. She put the coffee-pot down and looked gravely at him. You were in very bad shape when you came, she admitted. There was a time when I thought my remedies would not pull you through. They would not had you come five minutes later. He had no reply to make to this, and he stood there silent until she poured coffee into a cup, arranged some dishes, and then invited him to sit at the table. He needed no second invitation, for he had been twenty-four hours without food and he had little excuse to complain of the quality of the food that was set before him. He ate in silence, and when he had finished, he turned away from the table to see the girl dragging a rocking chair out upon the porch. She returned immediately, smiling at him. Your chair is ready, she said. I think you had better not exert yourself very much today. Why, ma'am, he expostulated, I'm feeling right well. I reckon I could be traveling now. I ain't used to being babied this way. I don't think you're being babied, she returned, a trifle coldly. I don't think I'd waste any time with anyone if I thought it wasn't necessary. I'm merely telling you to remain for your own good. Of course, if you wish to disregard my advice, you may do so. He smiled with a frank embarrassment and limped toward the door. Why, ma'am, he said regretfully as he reached the door. I certainly don't want to do anything which you think ain't right. After what you've done for me, 
I don't want to belittle you, and I think that when I said that I might have been gassing a little, but I thought maybe I'd been in enough trouble already. It was not entirely the confession itself, but the self-accusing tone in which it had been uttered that brought a smile to her face. All the same, she said, you are to do as I tell you. He smiled as he dropped into the chair on the porch. It was an odd experience for him. Never before in his life had anyone adopted toward him an air of even partial proprietorship. He had been accustomed to having people, always men, meet him upon a basis of equality. And if a man had adopted toward him the tone that she had employed, there would have been an instant severing of diplomatic relations and a beginning of hostilities. But this situation was odd. A woman had ordered him to do a certain thing, and he was obeying, realizing that in doing so he was violating a principle, though conscious of a strange satisfaction. He knew that he had promised the two-diamond manager, and he was convinced that, in spite of the pain in his foot, he was well enough to ride. But he was not going to ride. Her command had settled that. For a long time he sat in the chair, looking out over a great stretch of flat country, which was rimmed on three sides by a fringe of low hills and behind him by the cottonwood. The sun had been up long. It was swimming above the rim of distant hills, a ball of molten silver in a shimmering white blur. The cabin was set squarely in the center of a big clearing, and about an eighth of a mile behind him was a river, the river that he had been following when he had been bitten by the rattler. He knew from the location of the cabin that he had not gone very far out of his way, that a ride of an eighth of a mile would bring him to the Two Diamond Trail, and he could not be very far from the Two Diamond. Yet, because of an order issued by a girl, he was doomed to delay his appearance at the ranch. He had seen no man about the cabin. Did the girl live here alone? He was convinced that no woman could long survive the solitude of this great waste of country. Some man, a brother or a husband, must share the cabin with her. Several times he caught himself hoping that if there was a man here it might be a brother or even a distant relative. The thought that she might have a husband aroused in him a sensation of vague disquiet. He heard her moving about in the cabin, heard the rattle of dishes, the swish of a broom on the rough floor, and then, presently, she came out, dragging another rocker. Then she re-entered the cabin, returning with a strip of striped cloth and a sewing basket. She seated herself in the chair, placed the basket in her lap, and with a half-smile on her face, began to ply the needle. He lay back contentedly and watched her. Hers was a lithe, vigorous figure in a white apron and a checkered dress of some soft material. She wore no collar. Her sleeves were shoved up above her elbows, revealing a pair of slightly brown hands and white rounded arms. Her eyes were brown as her hair, the latter in a tumble of graceful disorder. Through half-closed eyes, he was appraising her in a riot of admiration that threatened completely to bias his judgment. And yet women had interested him very little. Perhaps that was because he had never seen a woman like this one. The women that he had known had been those of the Plains Town, the unfortunates who, through circumstances or inclination, 
had been drawn into the maelstrom of cow-country vice, and who, while they may have found flattery, were never objects of honest admiration or respect. He had known this young woman only a few hours, and yet he knew that with her he could not adopt the easy, matter-of-fact intimacy that had answered with the other women he had known. In fact, the desire to look upon her in this light never entered his mind. Instead, he was filled with a deep admiration for her, an admiration in which there was a profound respect. "'I expect you must know your business, ma'am,' he said after watching her for a few minutes. "'And I'm mighty glad that you do. Most women would have been pretty near flustered over a snake-bite.' "'Why,' she returned, without looking up, but exhibiting a little embarrassment, which betrayed itself in a slight flush. I really think I was a little excited, especially when you came riding up to the porch. She thought of his words, when, looking at her accusingly, he had told her that she was a hell of a snake, and the flush grew, suffusing her face. This, of course, he had not known, and never would know, but the words had caused her many smiles during the night. You didn't show it much, he observed. You must have took right a hold. Some women would have gone clean off the handle. They wouldn't have been able to do anything. Her lips twitched, but she still gave her attention to the sewing, treating his little talk with a mild interest. There's nothing about a snake bite to become excited over, that is, if treatment is applied in time. In your case, the tourniquet kept the poison from getting very far into your system. If you hadn't thought of that, it might have gone very hard with you. That rope around my leg wouldn't have done me a bit of good, though, ma'am, if I hadn't have stumbled onto your cabin. I don't know when seeing a woman has pleased me more. She smiled enigmatically, her eyelashes flickering slightly, but she did not answer. Until noon she sewed, and he lay lazily back in the chair, watching her sometimes, sometimes looking at the country around him. They talked very little. Once, when he had been looking at her for a long time, she suddenly raised her eyes, and they met his fairly. Both smiled, but he saw a blush mantle her cheeks. At noon she rose and entered the cabin. A little later she called to him, telling him that dinner was ready. He washed from the tin basin that stood on the bench, just outside the door, and, entering, sat at the table and ate heartily. After dinner he did not see her again for a time, and, becoming wearied of the chair, he set out on a short excursion to the river. When he returned, she was seated on the porch and looked up at him with a demure smile. "'You will be quite active by tomorrow,' she said. "'I ain't feeling exactly lazy now,' he returned, showing a surprising agility in reaching his chair." When the sun began to swim low over the hills, he looked at her with a curiously grim smile. "'I reckon that rattler was fool last night,' he said. "'But if fooling him had been left to me, I expect I'd have made a bad job of it. But I'm thinking that he done his little old dying when the sun went down last night, and I'm still here. And I'll keep right on, using his brothers and sisters for targets.' when I think that I'm needin' practice. Then you killed the snake? Why, sure, ma'am. 
I wasn't figuring on letting that rattler go of fanning right on to hook someone else. That'd be encouraging his trade. She laughed, evidently pleased over his earnestness. Oh, I see, she said. Then you were not angry merely because he bit you? You killed him to keep him from attacking other persons? He smiled. I sure was some angry, he returned. And I reckon that just at the time I wasn't thinking much about other people. I was having plenty to keep me busy. But you killed him. How? Why, I shot him, ma'am. Was you thinking that I beat him to death with something? Her lips twitched again, the corners turning suggestively inward. But now he caught her looking at his guns. She looked from them to his face. All cowboys do not carry two guns, she said suddenly. He looked gravely at her. Well, no, ma'am, they don't. There are some that claim carrying two guns is clumsy. But there's been times when I found him right convenient. She fell silent now, regarding her sewing. A quizzical smile had reached his face. This exchange of talk had developed the fact that she was a stranger to the country. No western girl would have made her remark about the guns. He did not know whether or not he was pleased over the discovery. Certain subtle signs about her warned him in the beginning that she was different from other women of his acquaintance. But he had not thought of her being a stranger here, of her coming here from some other section of the country, the East, for instance. Her being from the East would account for many things. First, it would make it plain to him why she had smiled several times during their talks over things in which he had been able to see no humor. Then it would answer the question that had formed in his mind concerning the fluency of her speech. Western girls that he had met had not attained that ease and poise which he saw was hers naturally. Yet, in spite of this accomplishment, she was none the less a woman, demure-eyed, ready to blush and become confused as easily as a Western woman. Assured of this, he dropped the slight constraint which, up till now, had been plain in his voice, and an inward humor seemed to drive the corners of his mouth slightly downward. I reckon that folks where you come from don't wear guns at all, ma'am, he said slowly. She looked up quickly, surprised into meeting his gaze fairly. His eyes did not waver. She rocked vigorously, showing some embarrassment and giving undue attention to her sewing. How do you know that? she questioned, raising her head and looking at him with suddenly defiant eyes. I'm not aware that I told you that I was a stranger here. Don't you think you are guessing now? His eyes narrowed cunningly. I don't think I need to do any guessing, ma'am, he returned. When a man sees a different girl, he don't have to guess none. The different girl was regarding him with furtive glances, plainly embarrassed under his direct words. But there was much defiance in her eyes, as though she was aware of the trend of his words and was determined to outwit him. I think you must be a remarkable man, she said, with the faintest trace of mockery in her voice. To be able to discover such a thing so quickly. Or perhaps it is the atmosphere. It is marvelous. I expect it ain't exactly marvelous, he returned, laboring with the last word. When a girl acts different, a man is pretty apt to know it. He leaned forward a little, speaking earnestly. 
I know that I'm talking pretty plain to you, ma'am, he went on. But when a man has been bit by a rattler, and a sort of give up hope, and has had his life saved by a girl, he's to be excused if he feels that he's some acquainted with the girl. And then, when he finds that she's some different from the girls he'd been used to seeing, I don't see why he hadn't ought to take a lot of interest in her. Oh, she exclaimed, her eyes drooping, and then her eyes dancing as they shot a swift glance at him. I should call that a pretty speech. He reddened with embarrassment. I expect you're laughing at me now, ma'am, he said. But I wasn't thinking to make any pretty speeches. I was telling you the truth. She soberly plied her needle, and he sat back watching her. I expect you are a stranger round here yourself, she said presently, her eyes covered with drooping lashes. How do you know that you have any right to sit there and tell me that you take an interest in me? How do you know that I'm not married? He was not disconcerted. He drawled slightly over his words when he answered. You wouldn't listen to me at all, ma'am. You certainly wouldn't stay and listen to any speeches that you thought was pretty, if you was married, he said. Plainly, he had not lost faith in the virtue of woman. But if I did listen, she questioned, her face crimson, though her eyes were still defiant. He regarded her with pleased eyes. I've been looking for a wedding ring, he said. She gave it up in confusion. I don't know why I'm talking this way to you, she said. I expect it is because there isn't anything else to do. But you really are entertaining, she declared for a parting shot. Once Ferguson had seen a band of traveling minstrels in Cimarron. Their jokes, of an ancient vintage, had taken well with the audience, for the latter had laughed. Ferguson remembered that a stranger had said that the minstrels were entertaining, and now he was entertaining her. A shadow passed over his face. He looked down at his foot, with its white bandage so much in evidence, then straight at her, his eyes grave and steady. I'm glad to have amused you, ma'am, he said. And now I reckon I'll be getting over to the Two Diamond. You can't be very far now. Five miles, she said shortly. She had dropped her sewing into her lap and sat motionless, regarding him with level eyes. Are you working for the Two Diamond? she questioned. Looking for a job, he returned. Oh, the exclamation struck him as rather expressionless. He looked at her. Do you know the two diamond folks? Of course. Of course, he repeated, aware of the constraint in her voice. I ought to have known. They're neighbors of yourn. They are not, she suddenly flashed back at him. Well, now, he returned slowly, puzzled, but knowing that somehow he was getting things wrong. I reckon there's a lot that I don't know. If you're going to work over at the Two Diamond, she said coldly, you will know more than you do now. My... Evidently she was about to say something more, but a sound caught her ear, and she rose, dropping her sewing to the chair. My brother is coming, she said quietly. Standing near the door, she caught Ferguson's swift glance. Then it ain't a husband after all he said, 
pretending surprise. End of chapter 4